0: Log Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglives.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and the Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis
1: Hello again everyone, Charles Marshall here on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. It is Thursday, June 7th, 2018, and I will be talking about a number of things in our segment today. One of the things that uh, I need to bring attention to, uh, I will bring attention to right away because it's a... A matter, I think, of really great significance is next Thursday. That is next Thursday, June 14th. Neil, Bill, myself, and Dan Kwaja, who you may recall, uh, Dan is an appellate. He's a foreclosure attorney out of Illinois. He handles appellate matters as well as the underlying lawsuits associated with appeals. And he has a lot of appellate experience. And he had a case, U.S. Bank versus Lopez. And that case has had a lot of interesting twists and turns. And the four people I just mentioned, that's Neil, Dan, myself, and Bill, we will all be on Next Thursday, having what I'm sure will be a very robust discussion about that case, about its implications, and there are a number of things happening in the appellate process right now that we would like our listeners to know about. So everyone should look forward to that, and again, that's next Thursday's show, and that'll be June 14th. Uh, 3 p.m. on the West Coast, 6 p.m. on the East, and for those of you in the middle of the country, either the Midwest or the mountains, check your times accordingly. As always, the West Coast Foreclosure Show, like Neil's show for himself, it is broadcast live, and we are here. Today, I am here today in San Diego, broadcasting the show for you from San Diego today. This show, as always, is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, Lending Lies, AMGAR, and it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you are able to donate is much appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. And the one other thing I'll say in connection with the show next week, uh, check Neil's blogs for additional related updates and information that it will be useful for listeners to, to review, and and just check out prior to next week's show. Now, as far as today's show goes, uh, the goal on this show today is to go over in the non-judicial foreclosure context. Even though, as as I say often when I'm discussing non-judicial foreclosure topics even though a lot of the same general principles will apply. So in other words, for everything we discussed today, there will still be some utility for those from judicial foreclosure states or intermediary states that handle both judicial and non-judicial foreclosures. There's a lot that you'll be able to, uh, to use as kind of a jumping off point to look into these matters further now on the issues of taxes there have been some significant developments and on paper they're worrisome but at least in California that worry has been greatly mitigated so I'll I'll tell everyone what I mean by that here in California back in 2008 9 10 when the market crashed and so many properties were going to foreclosure, there of course uh, was was a significant problem for borrowers. And what, what was that problem? Well, when you're underwater dramatically, and let's say you, you have a property, the lien amounts on it when it goes to foreclosure they add up to, let's say, 500000 and then the property goes to sale for 400000 Well, that $100,000 discrepancy, as, as many listeners will know, having run into this or even followed some of the permutations of how this works, some listeners will know, and for those who don't, I'm covering it now, it looks like loss, and on paper it is a $100,000 loss to the lien holders. On the other hand, it's hardly a gain to the former borrower, to the former owner, because that $100,000 doesn't go into their pocket. It's just kind of dead money out there. However, under tax law, and again, this is a general principle that you will see play out in, in many arenas, not just foreclosure, almost any kind of financial situation where you have a debt, you can see this principle applied. And what is the principle? It's the tax principle of implied income. So when you see your property go to sale and you see the sale price at 400 and the loan amounts wiped out at 500 that $100,000 discrepancy is treated as a gain to you by the IRS. They're literally saying, well, you just got $100,000. Of course, you didn't just get $100,000. But that, 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 that recordable loss, so to speak, on the books of the other parties is treated as a gain to you. So it's as if in your own books, your own financial records, you all of a sudden have this hundred thousand dollars this hundred thousand uh, dollar gain, quote unquote. and then whatever your tax rate is, you'll be taxed at that rate. California handled this, I think somewhat effectively. sometimes legislation actually comes down the pike that really is to our benefit. I don't see it happen a lot, but this particular situation was addressed by the California legislature. And there was a forgiveness arrangement set up whereby when, uh, and this actually also happened at the federal level. So there was both federal and California legislation. Federal uh, legislation is even more important, but the bottom line is that legislation is now sunsetted. It doesn't apply anymore. Uh, So what that meant is that particularly as related to the first lien holder, if a property went to sale, you weren't responsible as the taxpayer for any deficiency. Now, we're back into an environment where you are hypothetically responsible, meaning if you have the same scenario now, where let's say uh, a property with a $400,000 loan amount scenario, the liens at the time of sale where that goes to sale for three hundred, well, again, you have that same $100,000 overhang, except even though that would be treated as a taxable event in the current climate legally, and you still see those kinds of deficiencies sometimes, the good news scenario is that most properties going to sale now, when they do go to sale, they have equity in them. And that's because so much of so many areas in California that had a huge rundown in property values up to and including as late as 2013, they've had another big run up in values anywhere from 2011, 12, 13 to the present day. the The markets still have not topped out in a lot of areas. So if you have equity in the property, you don't have that same tax, tax consequence. What you have to be concerned about then is not so much tax related. You need to sit on the uh, sales trustee when your property is taken to sale, if it is, and you need to see that whatever equity is out there, after all the liens are taken account of, that extra amount is supposed to go to you. So that is certainly worth an issue to pursue for those whose properties go to sale. If you're in a minority situation where your property is underwater even now, then yes, you've got the tax scenario to deal with. And and that's something that you will likely want to seek advice on either with an attorney or a tax professional. Or, in a perfect world, a tax attorney who specializes in foreclosure. Now, another aspect to the intersection with foreclosure law and these other areas of law where you can get really big implications for foreclosures that actually go through, uh, that has to do with credit consequences. And the The credit consequences everybody's familiar with you know you're you're being reported off into the credit bureaus with multiple legs now hypothetically, if you get rid of the note during bankruptcy and I'll touch on that principle again because it's it's this is a major principle. this is where we come into one of the bankruptcy intersections uh but that principle and this is true anywhere, by the way, this is true in all the jurisdictions uh, of of the United States, be they federal or state, the way uh, even a mortgage promissory note is treated in Chapter 7 bankruptcy, the underlying debt, the actual promissory note, is considered discharged if you, the debtor, the Chapter 7 debtor, are getting a discharge otherwise. And if you went the Chapter 13 route, again, this would apply to any jurisdiction. If you stay in your payment plan, be it three or five years, make all your payments, get a uh, seal of approval at the end from the court and an official discharge, then yes, you would also get rid of your promissory note debt at that time. Unless you, unless you uh, reaffirmed your debt, which you will be tasked with doing in a 7. and a 13, you could either pay off the debt during dependency of the bankruptcy or if you're just keeping current on payments more or less, then the debt is going to continue after bankruptcy. Nevertheless, if you're looking at a Chapter 7 scenario, there, the promissory note does go away, but like any promissory note situation where there is a security interest, The creditor can still take the security interest. That is their remedy. The way I explain this, and I'll explain it here this way, you could be talking about a couch. You could be talking about a boat. You could be talking about a car. You could be talking about a home. If you filled out a security agreement, and and remember I said couch, yes, that does happen. There are certain department store chains. They're typically not the big ones. They're typically maybe regional ones that that maybe have half a dozen outlets in a specific city or county, what they will sometimes do, and the borrowers, borrowers well, when you finance the couch, let's say it's a leather couch, $7,000, so you finance it. And what that looks like in the real world is you just do a credit card purchase, and there's no separate agreement, well, that's an unsecured debt. If you don't pay on the credit card related to the purchase of the couch, then the the seller of the couch can't come after you. They can't come and get their couch back. But if you signed a security agreement at the time, no matter how you did the financing, the security agreement could and would say, if, it, if it's something you signed and something that was put in front of you that you signed, it could and would say, so with a car, so with, So with the house, even. These security agreements look very similar. It basically says, if you default on the underlying promissory note, we're going to take back the security. So in essence, your promise to pay is secured by the thing you're buying. And again, house, car, boat, couch, it's all the same legal principle so even if you get rid of the promissory note on a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, in that scenario, if you signed a security agreement, and of course all real estate purchases are they are wedded to a security agreement. There is always a deed of trust or a mortgage. That's your security agreement. And that applies throughout the United States. So coming back to the CAPS example, if you file sign a security agreement, if you BK Chapter seven, get rid of all your debts, including let's say you did you did financing with the uh, the seller of the cash. You didn't do a credit card. Well, you would still get rid of the loan you owed to them through a Chapter seven bankruptcy. However, if you signed a security agreement that said you default on this note, and that would include getting rid of it in bankruptcy. You default on this note. We're going to take back the security. So that's why even when you go into Chapter 7 bankruptcy, whether or not you're intending to keep your house, yeah, you get rid of the promissory note on the house, but you're still gonna have the creditor often come into bankruptcy court, file a motion for relief from stay. That's the automatic stay that otherwise prevents them from collecting against you. And they're going to make the argument, which will be accepted unless you can prove in some kind of adversary proceeding and some kind of opposition to prove the claim that the mortgage creditor should have filed. In other words, close the loop on that. You have to show they don't have standing as a creditor. Otherwise, they're going to win that motion for relief from stay, not just nine times out of ten, uh, maybe invariably. It would be hard to think of a scenario where they would not win you have to show that they don't have the legal right to collect on that, on that debt at all. And if you can challenge successfully their standing, then the security instrument supporting the node doesn't, doesn't allow them to collect at all. Now, other credit consequences, when a, when a home goes to sale, there can be situations where some of the lien holders will come after you. However, at that point, it's an unsecured debt. So, if you have creditors pressing you after a foreclosure sale, particularly in a non-judicial context, pressing you, making demands that you pay the underlying money owed, even though the property went to sale. Now, first of all, in California and elsewhere non-judicially, typically, the lien holders associated with bringing your property to sale, and oftentimes this will even roll over to the first lien holder, even if it's a second lien holder who brought your property to sale, they don't have a right to continue to collect on the debt. And the non-judicial foreclosure scheme, as it's sometimes called, is meant to essentially end the litigation related to the property. It's meant to say, okay, this is not going to be in court Therefore, everybody's rights are going to be resolved right here. Now, there can be limited scenarios where a creditor would still be able to collect. But, again, they'd only be able to correct, if at all, on an unsecured basis. They can't be going into court. They can't be sending demand letters. They can't be basically harassing you with demand letters as if the property never went to sale, as if you still have – a legal interest in the property on paper right now. Of course, the purpose of foreclosure lawsuits is often to restore someone's interest, but until and unless that happens through either successful litigation or a successful settlement, that's something that will not be resolved uh, unless you do get a successful settlement or a successful litigation resolution. Otherwise there can be situations where the so-called creditor will come after you and try to collect on this debt. Now there could be situations where you need to be paid in a chapter seven that gets complicated, but this is another area where you're going to typically seek expert advice and uh, you know, whatever jurisdiction you're in—be it California, another state, federal—you're typically going to be looking for advice from an attorney specialized in that area. Uh, unlawful detainer, big, big, big uh, part of the foreclosure environment in California. We we talk about that on this show, off and on, fairly frequently. Now, the unlawful detainer intersection is quite complex in and of itself uh there's a lot of bait and switching that goes on from those nominal trusts who so often show up to to bring these these uh unlawful detainer cases after a foreclosure sale in other words when there's a foreclosure sale in California, or any non-judicial state jurisdiction for that matter, or a non-judicial uh, particular legal action, even if it's in a state that doesn't see a lot of, of such actions, uh, what happens? What happens with unlawful detainer is that can be an incredibly summary process in some states, but in California, it's it's a real meaningful protection. Of course, it's not ideal, but it is pretty effective. And what it involves is this. It involves the sensible creditor going in. You know, sometimes it's the servicer, but usually the servicer is not claiming to be the nominal holder of the debt, is not claiming to be the nominal holder or owner of the note. They are acting on behalf of some trust, in quotes, in air quotes, of course, and that party will send a three-day demand letter followed up by an unlawful detainer lawsuit as the quote-unquote new owner, because like in bankruptcy practice, unlawful detainer cases will put you, the borrower, into some very odd legal framework. So, what happens in the non judicial foreclosure context? When, of course, because in the vast majority of cases, let's say your property goes to sale at 3 p.m. on a given day. Well, theoretically, once the paperwork on that is finalized that afternoon, and particularly when it's recorded, but legally even before it's recorded, you're no longer the legal owner of the property unless and until you can get a court ruling to show otherwise. So what happens is you are considered an illegal tenant. But you're not an illegal tenant with an agreement to pay this particular party and the party didn't exist up until the time that they bought your your property at foreclosure. So whether the nominal trust who brings a certain property to nonjudicial foreclosure sale, whether they take the property back, quote, unquote, with what's called a credit bid, or whether they, whether a third party buys the property. And this is something I've also explained to, to, uh, to those I'm talking to these matters about. Uh, and I will give my usual disclaimer again, that everything I say today is not legal advice, you should with a legal professional, if there's a tax or other intersection, tax professional, to vet everything that's discussed on this show, to follow up on and, and get further details and clarifications about everything that's discuss, discussed on this show. Uh, but Just to finish the loop on that, when you are in an unlawful detainer situation, in California, you can't just be kicked out. Now, that's true anywhere there has to be a legal procedure for treating you as an illegal tenant. Now, some states, that legal procedure is so thin and anemic that it is almost as if you have very few rights. California, you do have some rights. And if you fight an eviction lawsuit, procedurally, you can extend your time in the property, no matter what else happens. Sometimes months, certainly many weeks. uh, But similar to other states, and, and again, actually not as not as bad as other states. in California, if there's an actual lawsuit that's a summons and complaint related to what's called an unlawful detainer, if you are sued and you do nothing, a default can be taken against you literally uh, after five days from service. So you've got five days. From the time of the service to respond to the unlawful detainer complaint. And if you do respond legally, and there are a number of ways to do that, and again, consulting with particularly an attorney professional who handles that area is something, if you're in the situation, that would be quite useful to do. Uh, but you need to go through a number of kind of angles and legal procedures to get these cases litigated in a way to set yourself up for settlement and ideally to reverse the sale, though I will tell you that is a very tall order. It can be done, but it is, it is a very tall order. Now, the other aspect to this uh, for today's show was the estate planning intersection. The reason that matters is in estate planning like so many other areas is the legal principle the first principle that when property rights are transferred property rights are implicated you take those rights both as to the assets as to the pluses but also as to the debts as to the liabilities so in a non-judicial foreclosure context, and this is a complicated principle when it applies to estate planning, the liabilities associated with the sale of a particular property, there are scenarios where they can flow through from the borrower, even when the borrower becomes deceased, to whoever inherits the given situation. So, obviously, if a property is in foreclosure, that hasn't gone to sale. And yes, you could pass that. You could pass that property in an estate planning context, and the rights and liabilities would flow through. If it's gone to sale, well, at that point there's no legal property to pass. Um, rights and liabilities being passed there, complicated involved. And that wraps up our show for today. Again, I encourage everyone to uh, be with us next week for Dan Quasha. Until then.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.